0: listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. If you would turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4 this morning. We started in on a a message last week where Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has had a, a second dream. And Daniel has come in and interpreted that dream. And Daniel also appealed to King Nebuchadnezzar. He said, look, king, why don't you repent? Why don't you turn from your sin? Why don't you experience the grace and restoration of Almighty God? Unfortunately, That's not what King Nebuchadnezzar did. We're going to pick up in the text today and we're going to see what actually happened. The king had a dream. Daniel interpreted it. And now we're going to see the fulfillment of that dream this morning. I hope you will hear the word of God today. I hope you'll hear it clearly. I hope it will settle on your heart. As this text has settled on my heart, it's uh, brought some sense of heaviness as I have to talk to you about the judgment of God but as I also have to uh, come to a place myself in fear of God's judgment. It's something we don't talk about in the church anymore. We want everybody to feel good. We want uh, everybody to feel like they've come to uh, just a place where they are supposed to leave feeling better. Um, but this morning, we're going to see some heaviness in the text as we read it together. And so um, Daniel chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading in verse number 28. There's been the dream, there's been the interpretation, and now we're going to see the fulfillment of it. And it's clearly in the words in verse 28, notice if you will. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of My majesty, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. This is quite dramatic. There is a man who is speaking, but there is a voice that falls from heaven that silences this man's speaking and this man's thinking. A much heavier voice, a much more authoritative voice. Uh, There fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, to you it is commanded. The word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Verse 34. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can say his can stay his hand or say to him what have you done wow At the same time, my reason returned to me and the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. We come to the end of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is about um, Israel in exile. There are uh, eight or nine episodes in this uh, book that uh, are taken out of 70 years of life in exile. Nebuchadnezzar's reign was 43 years. We'll move on from Nebuchadnezzar to uh, another king. It's interesting that as Daniel writes to these people in exile, he's writing to encourage them. Um, He's writing to strengthen them, but he's also... uh, observing Nebuchadnezzar. And I think there, there are lessons here for us to learn from that in that uh, Daniel has this longing as he is writing and observing Nebuchadnezzar to see Nebuchadnezzar come to saving faith even though Nebuchadnezzar has the hand that is punishing him and judging him and keeping him in exile. So I want you to think about those things as we go through the text. But this morning there are four things that um, I would hope that you could walk away with this morning. Number one, we see the danger of being desensitized to the judgment of God. The danger of being desensitized to the judgment of God. Verse 28 is this transition statement. We see in the text, and it's clear, all this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. So the dream, the warnings, But now finally, all that Daniel has given to Nebuchadnezzar in the interpretation of this dream is coming on Nebuchadnezzar. This is a transition statement. God has warned him. God has informed him. God has called him to repentance. And now the judgment of God will come to pass. The text also tells us, and again you can see it in verse number 28, at the end of 12 months, there was a 12-month grace period There were 12 months in which Nebuchadnezzar could take time to reflect, take time to reason, take time to repent, take time to be restored. But the opposite happened. Over time, with him and with you and me, the fear of judgment dissipates. The warnings of God grow dim. Our heart leans in to proneness to wander. Lord, Lord, I feel it, prone to move away from the God that I say I love and not toward Him. And this is exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Over time, the thrill of sin, the exhilaration of self-glory drowns out the loving, pleading, gracious, warning voice of God. I hope you hear me this morning. Nebuchadnezzar was probably wondering after 12 months, maybe I was overreacting Maybe I forgot, or better still, even better, God really isn't there, and I was just having an anxiety attack. I overreacted, or I was just weak and emotional, or just my imagination running away from me. He soon forgot the divine warning and the deep conviction and the legitimate fear and became immersed in the beauty of his kingdom and the mirage of his self-importance and honestly, honestly, Nebuchadnezzar, like us, in his pride, felt invincible. He felt invincible. I think he was suffering from the same thing that we suffer from, the illusion of invincibility. Think for just a minute. We sin so freely and suppose our joyful freedom and independence from God because deep down we think we are invincible. I, I think we think we, when we sin that there is perhaps the possibility that we might be able to get away from it. The illusion of invincibility. We reject repentance. We reject restoration. We are calloused to tender grace. And we run from God as if we can get away with no thought, Of or fear of being caught or suffering the consequences for our sin, the illusion of invincibility. The truth is, let's face it, we sin because we think we can get away with it. We sin because we think we can get away with it. We think we are immune to it. We think we are invincible. So... This illusion of invincibility. And then when we come to verse 29, we see after this 12-month period of not drawing closer to God, this 12-month grace period of not taking advantage of the grace and compassion of God, but him growing further and further away from God. But when we come to verse 29, or verse number 30, we see the king again in the palace having a conversation with himself about himself, right? He's doing a self assessment again, 12 months later, and he likes what he sees, and he likes what he hears, and he likes what he feels. He was as high as he could go on top of the palace, looking over the city of Babylon, reminiscent of the Tower of Babel, where they were building this tower into the heavens. And the text tells us in verse 29 that he was walking around. He was walking, walking around looking. He was walking around looking at the eight gates, walking around looking at all the temples, looking at the buildings that he had designed that had now been built probably by the exiles. And his heart just became full of himself. God was the furthest thing from his thoughts. And again, he's reflecting what dream, what God, I am invincible. When if the truth be known, our hearts should be repentant and tender. We should fear and flee the wrath to come. But like Cain, we just can't resist it until it's over. And then he says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. In our ignorance and in our pride, we cross the line and feel powerful in the moment. And then God responds, and we are smitten with remorse and regret. And I would plead with you this morning not to sit arrogantly or smugly or securely while certain and debilitating judgment is on divine delay. You may be in sin and you may be getting away with it. But you are in a period of grace. There is a divine delay. And be sure your sin will find you out. The judgment of God will fall on your sin. God always judges sin. There is never a sin that goes unjudged. Don't find yourself with the heart and attitude of Nebuchadnezzar, the danger of being desensitized to the judgment of God. I think that's where we are. I think that's where we are. The second thing we see in the text is the danger of imagining your independence from God and liking it. The danger of imagining your independence from God and liking it. He's walking around. He's looking at all that he has built. He's having a conversation with himself about himself. He's obviously asking himself some questions or imagining some questions or perhaps he has created King Nebuchadnezzar's catechism and he's asking who is the greatest king in all the world, who has built the greatest kingdom in all the world and the answer always ends up being it's you, O king. You are the greatest, you are the most powerful, you are the smartest. You are the greatest architect, you are the greatest ruler. It is you, O king. He is imagining his independence from God and quite frankly he likes what he is imagining. The text says that he he answered It literally means that he reflected and responded. He answered and he said, and the word said is a command, and that is important because while King Nebuchadnezzar is giving this command about himself, God also is going to give a command to Nebuchadnezzar about himself. And so we see this comparison of a king who thinks he's in control, particularly of the people of God, while Daniel is watching, and then there is a king who comes under the control of God and the command of God, and the the commands of those who think they are independent of God come to nothing even if they don't believe in God. So Nebuchadnezzar answered and he said, he commanded, he declared, he spoke with certainty and assurance without doubts, with clarity, proudly. Is this not great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Pride is filling his heart. Self glory is dominating his thinking. And his words crystallize the pride in his heart and the self glory in his mind. All of this is a product. Of and reflective of my greatness, he said. Everything that I see is a product of and reflective of my greatness. This is great. What I see is great because I am great. What I've done is great. All of this is a result of my creativity and power. I am royal. I am living in a royal residence. I have royal genetics. I have royal blood. I am a God. I am living in royalty. I built all of this by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. And he had to have mirrors all around and looking in them say, I am a beautiful man. I am amazing. His words are spoken as though he believes that he did it all with the help of no one. Independent of God in the absence of God as though he is God. The danger of imagining your independence from God and liking it takes us back to Genesis 3 because Satan made this appeal to Adam and Eve. Imagine life independent from God. Imagine if there were no God to boss you around. Imagine if there were no God to answer to. Imagine if there were no God to manage or control you. Imagine if you were the master of your own destiny. That's true life, that's true freedom. Cain experienced the same thing and if we go to Genesis chapter 11 you can you can see these words that that we probably recite so often in our own heart and, and mind when we were commanded by God to disperse throughout the earth, but there were a group of people who gathered on a plane. The earth had one language, and in verse 3 it says, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks. We are independent of God. God has told us what to do, but we don't have to do what God tells us to do. Did you hear that? God has told us what to do, but we don't have to do what God told us to do. We are independent of God. Come. Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower and its top into the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. You see the antithesis to that in Genesis chapter 12. When God is now speaking, they are speaking. They're saying, let us, let us, let us, let us. In Genesis 12, God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. All of the let us's in the world will never trump the I wills of God. That is the lie of Satan. The belief, the thought that we can somehow live independently of God is the greatest lie that has ever been told. Our unregenerate soul was birthed in rebellion, was born with this desire for independence and self-control. And pride is the crown prince of sin. And all our sin is the desire to satisfy ourselves apart from God, and it never ultimately works. Did you hear me? The pull, the tug of Satan and our fallenness is to get away from God at all costs. Get him out of my thoughts. Get that word out of my way. In fact, even if you go to churches, many times the Bibles aren't even open. Just get God away from me. Let's take his names out of the songs. Right, we don't, want, we, don't, we don't want him anywhere around us. He's like a disease. We've been vaccinated against him. As so though somehow we can live independent from him, and that's not going so well for us. All of sin is our desire to satisfy ourselves apart from God, and it never ultimately works. So here Nebuchadnezzar is in his pride in sin. Let me just say something about sin. We dabble with sin, you know? We, we, we slice it up and cut it off in small bites and eat it like we're eating a juicy steak. We, we take it like a piece of candy and let it roll around in our mouth and just slowly kind of dissipate and enjoy the taste of it. We think sin is like a car. You get into it, get tired of it, get out of it. I want to tell you that when we get into sin, we never get out of it. And if we think we've gotten out of it, whatever we've gotten out of got out on us. Sin is uncontrollable. Sin is unpredictable. Sin is unmanageable. Sin is demanding. Sin is dictating. Sin is always, without exception, going to result in death. The soul that sins, it shall die. Life independent of God is not life at all, but it is death. Every time we are tempted to fall into sin, we presume our ability to manage it. Every one of us that is in sin this morning is in sin having signed a contract with Satan and he lied, by the way, believing that we can manage the sin that we are in and we can enjoy it for a minute and then turn it off and all of a sudden we are back to where we were and we never will be if that's what we believe. Every time we are tempted to fall into sin, we presume our ability to manage it, and we believe it's promise that we will be better off for it. Sin's promise is, here is life, this is good, get a taste. And it's all a lie. It could be summed up in the phrase, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens in Vegas does not stay in Vegas. What happens in Vegas gets on the plane and comes home with you. And as long as we keep our sin in the dark, and as long as we hide our sin, and as long as we're not confessing our sin, right? First uh, John tells us, bring it into the light. As, as long as we're just leaving our sin there thinking that we're managing it or controlling it, then our sin owns us. And it goes with us everywhere we go and it impacts every relationship that we have. It impacts every conversation that we have. We just think we've hidden it and we haven't. That is the lie of Satan and that was the lie that he had told and sold to Nebuchadnezzar in the face of a a gracious, compassionate God calling him to repent and be restored. Nebuchadnezzar said, I don't think so. This God has taken his time. He hasn't judged me. I'm going to bank on the fact that he's asleep or he isn't there or he doesn't exist and I am in control. The belief is this, that there is life in being untethered from God and from his word and from his life. Life can be yours if you abandon God. Life can be yours if you reject God. Life is truly life when you are in complete control and that is a lie. And folks, that's what drives us to our sin, our desire for Control. This is not the illusion of invincibility. I'll add a, diff- a second illusion to It, it is the il- illusion of self-determinism. I can determine outcomes. I can create. I can decide. That is at the core of our fallenness. How is pride? How is self-determinism? How is independence from God showing up in your life and in my life? I think we need to ask that question. Are you living a life of isolation? Are you living a life where you think you have your secret sins under control? Are you living a life coddling and concealing sin? If we get anything from the text, we ought to understand this by looking at these few verses this morning. We need to be constantly moving away from pride and toward humility. We need to be moving away from independence and toward dependence. We must decrease. He is the one that must increase. Without Him, we can do nothing. Not I, but Christ in me. But yet the lie of Satan is that life can be found in being independent from God. And so... We see the danger of being desensitized to the judgment of God. We see the danger of imagining your independence from God and liking it. And thirdly, we see in the text in verses 31 to 33 the suddenness and the severity of the judgment of God. The suddenness and the severity of the judgment of God. While Nebuchadnezzar's, the verse t- tells us in verse 31, while Nebuchadnezzar's vocal cords, were still vibrating while his heart was still filled with pride and his thoughts were soaking in his grandeur there was this interrupting voice this voice was heavy a voice fell a voice fell i don't know where Here's the guy that's the ruler of the known world, standing at probably the highest point that anyone had built up to this point in the history of man, save that tower that God interrupted through the confounding of languages in Genesis chapter 11. Here is a man standing over everything, admiring everything that he'd done, praising himself as the king, and he the, he is commanding all of these amazing things about himself, and now all of a sudden there is a voice that is above his voice. His voice controls everybody that is beneath him. Quite frankly, his voice controls the people of God. They're in exile, being punished for seven years for their sin. But now there is a voice that is controlling this seemingly puny voice of this great man. It is authoritative. It is undeniable. It is powerful. It is a voice that exposes everything that has already been said. The Hebrew word there uh, could, could Literally be translated growl. This is the growl of God. This is the growl of the judgment of God. A voice, a heavy voice falls. Out of heaven on to Nebuchadnezzar. And this voice, and you can see it in the text, the voice fell from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. To you it is commanded. The king was commanding, but now the king is being commanded because there is one who can command the king. This command is certain. The commands of God will always be superior to the commands and presuppositions of man. Say what you will. God's word is the final word. Think what you want to think. God's word is the final word. Do what you want to do. God's word about you and your life is the final word. And it's when we try to slip from beneath that and live in independence from God, and it's when we try to slip from beneath that and somehow be desensitized to the possibility of the judgment of God that we now have to hear this growl of God, this voice of judgment from God, this voice of wrath this voice of terror. The growl of God gobbles up the stupid things we say about ourselves. He's standing on the roof saying the most audacious things and the growl of God gobbles up all of the foolish, senseless, audacious things we think and say about The word comes and it's clear. First of all, the kingdom has departed from you. You have lost the source of your glory. Here's what's happening, Nebuchadnezzar. You think this kingdom is life? You think this kingdom is what makes you alive? You think your pride is what makes you feel alive? And by the way, there is this little short-term experience in all of this where our pride does make us feel alive. There is this short-term experience where our sin does make us feel alive. Do this and you'll feel alive. I did it and I felt alive. But all of a sudden, that lie has been exposed and the thing that now made him feel alive has been taken away from him. The source of his glory has been taken from him. The kingdom has been taken from him. His idol has been taken from him. The source of life has been taken from him. Here's a second word. Not only has it departed, but he has been driven. The kingdom has departed, but he has been Driven, you shall be driven from among men. The word driven means chased away. It means to be expelled. And the word driven doesn't mean just driven away once, but it's a sustained sense of being pursued and being chased. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, the judgment of God on you is that you're going to feel this sense of paranoia in your relationship to human beings for the next seven years, just like an animal or a deer. I was visiting with my daughter and I looked out her front window and there was a deer standing in the front yard. And deer hear just about everything. They heard us moving. And so while they're trying to eat a few acorns or whatever it is they're eating out in the front yard, the least little noise and they're startled. This is what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar. He's not only... uh, Departed, but he has been driven away into paranoia and the thought in his mind is that he is being continuously chased like a fearful animal when it spots a human being. Our sin nature makes us paranoid of God. Our sin nature chases us away from His presence. Our, Our sin nature generates this massive shame that weighs us down. And so... He is departed and he is driven away from God. He is driven away from life. We see it in Genesis 3, right? They're driven out of the garden. Why? Lest they come and partake of the tree of life. They are driven away from life. Sin will always drive us away From life, I don't care how much you think you love your sin or what benefit you think you are getting from it, please understand that your sin is driving you deeper into shame and further away from life and driving you into paranoia against the very one who loves you so. Against the one who is your rock, who is your refuge, who is your strength, who is your redeemer, who is your savior, who is the source of life, the fountain of life. He goes from departing and being driven out like an animal to a a dwelling. No longer is he in a palace. He's at home with animals. He's like the prodigal son. The prodigal son was was perfectly fine at home, but he had the audacity to say, God, give me what you owe me. Dad, give me what you owe me. I'm going to take it out. I'm going to waste it. By the way, that's where we are in our sin. We're just wasting our lives, and we finally find ourselves in a place that we never thought we would be. He found himself in a place where he never thought he would be. He found himself in the pigsty. And he said, how in the world did I get here? I'm going back home. I'm going back to my father. Nebuchadnezzar finds himself down on his hands and knees, constantly looking at the ground, eating grass, eating hay, Cows are now his community. Grass is his gourmet meal. And the way his mind has been shaped by the judgment of God, it quite frankly makes perfect sense to him. Hey, by the way, if you're in sin this morning, if you've been deceived by sin, your sin makes perfect sense to you. You're you're sitting there this morning and you're hanging on to it and you look at me and you say, do you, you you?" You better not touch that. You better not touch that. You better leave that alone. Don't you be talking to me about sin. What about your sin? How much time you got? Sin will take you for a ride, and you'll say, stop and let me out, and it won't. It'll take you to places you never thought you could ever dream of going, and the tragedy of it all is when you get there, you'll think it's normal. For seven years, this guy's crawling around on his hands and knees, eating grass like a cow, looking down and never looking up, scared of everybody and everything around him and feeling like he's under constant attack. And it's all because he chose the judgment of God over the grace of God. Looking down like an ox, believing that life is one more chomp of grass, looking around like an animal, thinking everyone is a threat, thinking he can't trust anybody, <laughs> thinking everybody will let you down. He's Paranoid. They have different names for it. Some, some said that perhaps God struck him with hydrophobia, fear of water, which means he never wanted to get a bath. That explained why his nails and his hair, Looked away, they did. The third thing we see, or excuse me, the fourth thing, the final thing we see is this: the restorative power and grace of God, verses 34 to 37. If you'll look back in the text, he said, "You shall be driven among men in your dwelling." I'm in verse 32. And your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox for seven periods of time shall pass over you, probably seven years until you know that, until you know, until, until, until. <laughs> Grab a hold of that word. Until. This judgment will come to an end. We see the restorative power and grace of God, there's good news here. I don't want to leave you in your sin. I don't want to leave you in the judgment of God. I want to offer you hope today. Until, until you know that God is in control of all things. This is good news to an exiled people. Their God, who had them in a season of discipline for seventy years, is in control of the king and the nation that holds them captive and they are watching God judge this king and they are knowing that God judged them and they're seeing how God operates and works and they have to come to this conclusion that God is trustworthy. There is an until, Nebuchadnezzar. There is an until for Israel. There is an until for you and me. Until what? Until what? Until you know in your heart that you are not God. Until you know that you do not control outcomes. Until you know that you do not know what is best. Basically, the bottom line is this. The answer to the until is this. It is until you surrender. Until you surrender. Until you reach in your pocket. I tell every couple in premarital counseling, both of you need a white flag. Marriage will not exist without a white flag. And there's just sometimes you need to surrender. There's just sometimes you need to surrender. When it comes to God, can I just tell you you need to surrender. You need to surrender. You need to give up. You need to give in. Everything in you doesn't want to do that. Everything in your pride doesn't want to do that. Everything in our pride doesn't want to admit that we're wrong and God is right or that we're wrong and anybody else is right. But there has to come a place where we surrender to God. We don't understand everything. We can't control anything. We just surrender to Him in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our hardship, in the midst of His judgment, in the midst of consequences. We just surrender until you surrender. Let me offer you some words of hope. The discipline and judgment of God has a timer on it for the children of God, and it's called grace, and we see that in verse Number 34, at the end of days, rather than looking down at grass and looking around at everything that I'm scared to death of and paranoid, I lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. The discipline and judgment of God has a timer on it for the child of God at the end of days I look to heaven the word heaven is is, is indicative of the source of life I stopped looking to sin as a source, source of life and I looked to heaven to the source of life in heaven life is not found in sin life is not found on earth life is not found in pride life is not found in power life is not found in buildings that we can stand and look at and be amazed at life is found in heaven Nebuchadnezzar no longer looked to himself or what he had created or what he had built. He lifted his eyes and looked to God, who is seated and ruling and in control. And he says, My reason, my mind, my sanity, my understanding, my ability to comprehend. Much like the prodigal son, he came to his senses. He said, I'm going home. I'm going to repent. I'm going home. And when he repented and he went home, what did the father do when he went home? I want to tell you this morning, if you are in sin, there is not a party that awaits. There is a judgment that awaits. I want to tell you that if you are in sin this morning, that there is not pleasure that awaits, but there is death that awaits. But I'm telling you, if you repent, there is a father in heaven who welcomes you home. I love, I love the story of the prodigal son. Kill the fatted calf bring out my best robe put a ring on his finger let that boy know he's let that boy know he's mine we're having a party tonight whenever we turn from our sin and go home to the father the father throws this massive party there is a party waiting for you on the other end of repentance and i would tell you to abandon your sin immediately right now get out of it and come home the father awaits a party awaits a celebration awaits. He said, I looked up, my mind was restored, and he said, I worshiped. And he uses three words. He said, I, I bless the Lord, the word blessed, and I get the concept of surrender. What is, what it, how, why is the until, until surrender? It is until surrender because when he said he blessed the Lord, it, it means that he knelt. That he knelt. I bow before you, God, you're in control. He goes from thinking that everything is kneeling to him and serving him and going his way to him kneeling before the God who is ultimately in control. Not only did he bless, but he praised, he commended, he spoke highly of. Instead of him walking around saying, I need somebody to speak highly of me, he now all of a sudden has been transformed into someone that is constantly speaking highly of God. And he also honored God. He glorified God. He magnified God. He gave weight to God. He gave importance to God. When in our sin, we wish that God would give importance to us. Make me important, God. Make my life, make my desires important. Make my will important. Do what I want you to do for me, God. Then he said this, Who lives forever He is surrendering to the eternal one. He is surrendering to the living one. He is surrendering again to the source of life. The one who lives forever is the source of life who gives life. And he tells us in the text, I was restored. Look at at verses 36 and 37 again. He said, At the time... At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Let me just, let me just offer you a couple of thoughts, um, actually four of them. Number one, God is in control, right? You're like, I drove all the way over here today for you to tell me that. Can't you you come up with something new? I don't have anything new. That's old news, but it's good news. God is in control. This was good news to Israel. They were experiencing exile. None of us, I don't believe, ever experienced exile. They were experiencing unbelievable, unbearable, difficult circumstances. And this passage would come to them as they watched this happen in the life of Nebuchadnezzar and they would be able to rest in the midst of their pain, rest in this anchor of the sovereignty of God no matter what's going on in their life. God is in control You say, okay, 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 I get that, I get that. But what about, but what about my plan? This is, this, this, is, this is the snag. This is the snag, right? This is the snag in the sweater and you pull the string and the sweater's gone in a few minutes, so you got a big hole in it. This is the snag. Okay, okay, okay. God's in control, I get that. I, I intellectually acquiesce to that concept. God is in control. But but what about me? But what about my plan? But what about my desire? But what about my will? But what about my hopes? But what about my dreams? I would just say surrender them all to Him. Surrender them all to Him. This is the plea of a people under judgment. Surrender. To a people in pride, surrender. To a people whose lives have been disrupted, Surrender to a people who have it all going just like they like it. Just surrender. Would you just give up? God is in control. Don't just surrender, but surrender everything that you think you need to hold on to and control so that you can have life like you want it. Give up everything that you think is life so that you can have real life. Secondly, sin is relentless. Sin is not a joke. Sin is pursuing you. If you look through your windshield, it's in front of you. If you look in your rearview mirror, it's behind you. If you glance to the left out of your peripheral vision, it's beside you. If you glance to the right, it's beside you. If you look down, it is there. If you look up, it is there. Sin is relentless and it is pursuing you and it is pursuing me. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day, there's never a buzzer that gives it a break at 10 and 3 or 30 minutes for lunch or Saturday and Sunday off. Sin is relentless it appeals to our spirit our heart, our desires, our mind our senses, it is continuous and comprehensive covering every area of our lives continuously and it will take all or part of us and it will exploit and it will manipulate and it will confuse and it will entertain and it will amuse and it will deceive and it will comfort and it will take you to places that you never imagined that you could go It will anesthetize you to the judgment of God and make you feel indifferent and invincible. And while I would say that God is in control, surrender to Him, I would also say that we should fear sin. Evil is hunting. Destruction is its goal. And the last place you want to be is intimate with sin and independent of a loving, gracious God. Do you hear me? The last place you want to be is intimate with sin and independent of a loving, gracious God. If I could lock you in a room today and say, I've got one of two people that I could put you in there with. I could put you in there with all of your sin. All of your sin. Or I could put you in there with the sweetest, Kindest, most gracious, most loving, most caring. Almighty God, what would you choose? If I could say, hey, look, I'm going to put you in a room and I'm going to put a sociopath in the room with you and he's going to have hidden weapons, right? I'm going to put you in a room with somebody that's going to take care of you, that's going to protect you. That's gonna give you life. One is gonna take life, one is gonna give you life. What would you do? What would you choose? Who do you want in the room with you? Folks, that's sin. You do not want sin in the room with you. Choose life, choose Christ. Thirdly, the judgment of God is real. The round is chambered, it may be taking some time. You may be in a season of grace. But God always judges sin and all sin will be judged without exception. But I've got good news for you. God judged sin in His Son. God poured out His wrath on His Son. God took our sin and our shame and He put it on His Son and He poured His wrath out on His Son and He punished His Son for our sin so that we could be free so that we could be free, so that we could know life and not death. The judgment of God is real and you can stand before God and have your sin judged and you can face eternal separation and be driven away from His presence or you can accept what Christ did for you and you can be welcomed into the presence of a holy God for one reason and one reason alone, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then finally, there is a fountain. There is a fountain. It is the source of life. The one and only everlasting, ever-living God. Sin brings death, but there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And all who will come and stand beneath that flood lose all their guilty Stains forever forever. And I beg you this morning to come to the fountain. Final word, side note, context. Daniel is sitting, writing. I believe in an early date for Daniel, not a late date. Archaeology tells us that this stuff all happened during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, during the... Babylonian exile of the people of Israel. This was not written in 175 B.C., but this was written much earlier than that. And Daniel is writing and Daniel is looking and Daniel is standing here with a man who makes him his prisoner, who keeps him in exile, but Daniel loves him deeply and wants to see him set free from his sin. And I would say this in closing before we do communion. As recipients of grace... Our deepest desire, as we think about this fountain, as recipients of grace, our deepest desire should be to get grace and mercy, to get the grace and mercy of God out to others. Every one of us needs a Nebuchadnezzar in our lives. Every one of us needs somebody that is so lost, that is so messed up, that is so deep in sin, And we're praying and we're exposing them to truth. We're exposing them to God. We're exposing them to grace. We're exposing them to the opportunity for restoration. Every one of us needs to have a heart for the lost around us because the Lord Jesus Christ had a heart for you and for me. As we come to a time of communion, let me remind you, Jesus Christ was driven from men. Outside the camp to the place of the skull. He was treated like an animal. He was a sacrificial lamb. He was covered not in dew, but in blood. His hair didn't grow, but his beard was plucked from his face. His nails didn't grow, but nails were driven into his hands and his feet. And He died and paid sin's penalty for you and for me. And communion is our coming and recognizing what He did. It is our declaration of our humility when we receive these elements. It is our declaration of our need for His grace. It is our declaration of our repentance and surrender. It is our declaration of our hope, of our hope in a kingdom that is coming and it will be an everlasting kingdom ruled by an everlasting king. I hope that is your hope this morning. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you to come and remember the Lord. If you need to talk, if you don't know Christ, please come see me before you leave here today. If there's sin in your life, I would challenge you and encourage you, encourage you to repent of that right now this morning. It will only bring death. Get out of the death trap. There is life in Christ come to life. Father, bless us now as we partake of these elements that remind us of something far more glorious glorious than a rooftop or the hanging gardens of Babylon or a city that is surrounded by a wall. So much more meaningful than a kingdom and a king with great power. These are the elements, these are the representations of a king who could have ruled everything but humbled himself. I pray that as we come today, we would reflect on your humility, Lord Jesus. And I pray that we would humble ourselves before you. I pray that we would repent of our sin and turn from our sin. I pray that we would take out the white flag and raise it to you and say, I surrender all. And I pray today that as we walk out of this room that we'd look for people who are in desperate need of grace just like we were and we would pass it on to them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.